Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, August 11th. It's a Brian Lehrer Show music history special on this August 11th, considered the 50th anniversary of the day hip-hop was born in the Bronx, as we do some music, some conversation, some of your oral history calls. With me now is Joyce Lynn Wilson, professor of hip-hop studies and digital media at Georgia Tech University. She was born in Alabama, grew up in Atlanta, and so brings a little different life experience to her scholarship, in addition to being a woman who studies what is often seen as a largely male art form. Professor Wilson, thanks for giving us some time today. Happy August 11th, and welcome to WNYC. Yeah, hip hop array. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here. And I, I enjoyed that introduction. Thank you. Thank you. I, and uh, I enjoyed that little turn of phrase there. Hip hop hooray. We'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about the music, of course, and its place in American history and today. But would you introduce yourself a little to our listeners first? I see you grew up in a family of educators. So what did they do? And where was that for you mostly as a kid? Oh, so yes, my mother is a retired um, school teacher, social studies and physical education teacher from the Atlanta Public Schools. Um, I come from a family of educators, whether that's daycare centers or just keeping kids. So I've been around women and um, you know them teaching and educating for a while. I my family moved to Atlanta in the early seventies, along with the many African-Americans who were migrating to Atlanta during that time. And so I grew up around um, a very fortunate, in a very fortunate situation in the sense that um, I grew up around a lot of Black excellence. I grew up around civil rights legends and um, in the home of the civil rights, um, one of the civil rights, biggest civil rights movements. Um, and to be from and in a place that really saw hip hop integrated with this in real time has just been something to watch and to experience. And I started collecting hip hop early on and then realized when I became a math teacher myself, I started relying on some of the techniques that I saw my teachers using. And it was integrating music and integrating culture and pop culture into the classroom. After I read Trisha Rose's Black Noise uh, during my first, as a first year um, algebra teacher, high school algebra teacher, I said, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to bring my love for the culture, uh, but also talk about it from a Southern perspective. During that time, a lot of folks didn't really know a whole lot about Outkast or didn't think that Outkast was going to change the the um, industry in the way that they did and the culture in the way that they did, rather. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, so I just started to think about ways in which I could get a PhD, um, but focusing on hip hop and its relationship with schooling and education. And it's been a journey since. And we're going to talk about some of how you combined your background as a math teacher, of all things, uh, with your in- interest in hip hop and culture and politics. Uh, but let me stay on your formative years a little bit first. Do you remember some of your earliest musical exposures? Was there music being played in your home? Oh, of course. Yes. 
So my mother is an avid music collector. She had vinyl in the house, she and my dad. And so I remember when I was gifted my first 12 inch, it was Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. I had a portable turntable that I would take with me everywhere, whether it was to my grandmother's house, my dad's house, wherever I could go, visiting family in Atlanta, I would take it. It was white. It was huge. It had this mural of the Bee Gees painted on the inside. And I would take that along with my vinyl. And I got that from from watching my mom collect records, Ohio Players, James Brown, um, jazz. I mean, even something, you know, as far as like Kenny Rogers, I have Mm -hmm. a pretty diverse, diverse experience with music and a love for music rock. Um, because of uh, the exposure from my mom and just my love for it. So I gravitated to music very early. Do you have a a basic approach to studying hip-hop as an academic pursuit? Yeah, so I start with the lyrics. So my, um, my PhD is in educational anthropology. A lot of people think I have a PhD in hip-hop, and I don't. I'm an educational anthropologist. And so I have always started with the lyrics and looking at the lyrics and seeing what the what the stories are and what they're telling and and what those what questions can be generated from those lyrics. And that love for looking at lyrics started as well as a kid. I um, would go and go to magazine stands and literally go and look at. You know, remember those magazines that would print the lyrics. And so I would go and look at the lyrics and really just try to get behind what artists were saying. You know, it didn't necessarily have to be rap music. I was just interested in the lyrics Mm -hmm. and the stories Mm -hmm. that were being told. Mm. And when you say um, educational anthropologist, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? People may have heard that phrase and think, what is that an educational anthropologist? Does that mean you study the way education is done in different cultures? Well, I study the relationship between education and culture and the ways in which different communities, communities of practice go about teaching and learning, whether that's inside the school, whether that's inside the home, whether that's through media. For me, I've done that mainly dealing with lyrics and music. So that relationship, what can we learn, for example, in rap lyrics? I was interested in the language of schooling. I wanted to know more about what the hip hop generation had to say about certain things related to education. So for example, what does this generation have to say about segregation or desegregation or integration? What do they say about teachers? What does this generation have to say about knowledge and knowledge acquisition and the way in which it is acquired? So those were some of the early questions that I asked of um, much of the Southern rap that was coming out during the time when I started this this research and really focused in on it. Moj in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hello, Moj. Thanks for calling in. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I love the conversation that's being had and just how much uh, depth is um, being brought to it. So thank you so much for, for doing this segment. And I just want to give a shout out to my older brother, Mo. He, uh, you know, introduced me to hip hop back when I was 13 years old, he took me to Bed-Stuy, and I saw Naughty by Nature and Salt and Pepper as my first mm. concert ever. And it was a, a formative experience, um, and I have, you know, my older brother to thank for that. So, yeah. Any words you can put on that experience? Oh, I mean, 
the energy, I'd, I'd never felt energy like that before. There was so much pride and joy and like, it was, you know, a summer in New York City, so that's a special feeling that we all know very well. Um, but so cool. I felt like I wasn't cool enough to be there. Um, but it was it was just awesome. I think you were cool enough to be there. Now, did you say your brother's name is Mo <laughs> and your name is Moj? Yeah, yeah. His name is Mohammed and my name is Mojdeh. Gets a little confusing at times. Uh, that must have been tough for your parents. Mo, uh, Moj, uh, Moj, uh, Mo, right? Did that happen a million times? Yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for but, your um, call. And thank Thanks, you for Brian. thank you for your story. I know you've studied and written and spoken about music from Outkast, and they are an Atlanta-based um, hip hop uh, legendary duo. Uh, and and you're Atlanta-based. Is there a moment, or Georgia-based, grew up in Atlanta? Is there a moment when you'd say hip hop first came to Atlanta? Yeah. So Atlanta was always a part of listening to hip hop, right? So. Um, like I said, Rapper's Delight was played on the radio stations in the South. Um, but when we talk about the history of hip hop, for example, even just looking at today, August 11th, 1973, if we put that in context and try to understand what was actually happening socially and politically during that time, the, the, the party that Cool Herc and Cindy threw took place, um, I guess, Maynard Jackson was two months away from making history as Atlanta's youngest and first African-American mayor. So I think that we have to consider at, at, at the time that the practices and the elements were converging in New York and Atlanta, many of those social justice elements were forming with that election. Atlanta has always been a music city. It's always been a city for the arts. Auburn Avenue, um, bands like the SOS Band, Brick, uh, Cameo, um, the Jack the Rapper conference. So by the time we get to Outcast, we have also had Soso Def and Jermaine Dupree. We've had Criss Cross. Um, there, there are these crumbs that get dropped or these building blocks, I, I should, should say, that led to that moment in 1994. So Atlanta's always had this scene, even if we talk about 1982, when Planet Rock came out and the message came out, there was a song called Let Mojo Handle It that came out in Atlanta. It's considered one of the first rap songs. And it was a song that was written for young folks in Atlanta who were just coming out of the sheltering in place um, season of the Atlanta child murders. So there are these things that are happening in Atlanta alongside this party, alongside the the early 80s that led to that moment in 1994 atlanta mm. wasn't wasn't like living in you know this vacuum at the time that these things were happening in, in new york there were things simultaneously taking place in atlanta that led to that 1994 moment without parents um is there what you would call in atlanta or more broadly a southern hip-hop sound as compared to what we might hear typically in the Northeast, for example, you know, like you were talking about how growing up you listened to all kinds of music, including uh, rock. So like, 
you know, rock fans would think, oh, the Allman Brothers, that's like Southern Rock and other bands like that. And that's a different sound from, I don't know, Lou Reed, David Bowie you might hear in New York or British rock. Uh, Is there something you can put your finger on that makes a Southern or Atlanta hip hop sound? Yeah. So there are three three things I could point to. So when Atlanta hip hop early on, particularly around DJs, um, was very much influenced by Miami bass and that 808 very, uh, the BPMs are faster. You know, you might hear it as bass or booty music. It's, it's, it's music that's going to get you to dance. Um, but then by the time we get to Outcast, that music becomes very Southern. You hear the country in it. You hear the funk, you hear the soul, um, and by the time we get to trap music, we hear the trickling hi-hats, we hear heavy on the keys, um, particularly when we think about the music of Lil Jon, you know, he's very, he has influenced not just Southern rap, but just music in general, particularly hip hop music with the way in which he leans on his, on the keys and create, you know, these 808 drops along these trickling hi-hats. So yeah, there is a particular sound that has now become a sound that has permeated outside of the South. It has become like its own blueprint or sonic blueprint uh, for artists who don't necessarily live in the South. I mean, if we look at an artist like Drake, for instance, mm-hmm. he is heavily influenced by Houston rap and, and the Houston sound, the Atlanta sound. Um, he was one of the first artists to jump on Amigos track. So there are a lot of folks who are heavily influenced by that Southern sound to the point where, you know, if you didn't know that Cardi B was from New York, especially on her first album, you'd think that she kind of grew up in the South. Hmm. Well, I think we've discovered that you're not the only math and science teacher in the world who also teaches hip hop because we're having (laughs) uh, a call here who's ready to go. Angela calling from Costa Rica. Angela, you're on WMIC. Hello. (laughs) Hey, hey, how you doing, Brian? Um, this is Angela. Um, I used to, I retired, Brian, so I'm living in Costa Rica taking care of my mom. Um, but I was a middle school teacher in Bushwick, Brooklyn for um, 31 years, and I, I um, taught at the school I attended. Um, so I remember um, in 1977 when I was in the fifth grade and going to, um, she's from the South, so people from New York would know this store, The Wiz, downtown Brooklyn. Like That's where you would go to buy all of your your albums so i remember buying kington the third and rapper's delight and bringing it into um the school the dance class for the teacher to play but because i think because i i grew up in that era when hip-hop first started when i started as a middle school science teacher at the age of 22 i was able to relate to the students and i was telling your screener that i would um Every spring break, I would assign the students um, an assignment where they would have to either write a song or rap about anything or a poem, anything that we've done in science for the school year. And I had one particular student, lovely young man, but just didn't feel like doing his work, right? He wasn't someone that was always on top of his work. But when I gave that assignment, he and a friend of his, like, they would give up their lunchtime to practice, to rehearse. His name is Jamusa. Uh, is Jamusa and Jamusa and Toby. 
they would give up their lunch time to practice, to rehearse, to write the rap, and that and they did a great job. Like I, I think that was the highest score, probably the only score, because he was reluctant to do the work. But he definitely, the both of them, put their time in when they had the opportunity to do their rap. And and I've done that. I did that for my, I guess, almost thirty years of education, and mm-hmm. I have videos of students rapping. I have VHS of students rapping. Um, yeah, it, it, it was it was great, and I think they appreciated it. And, and some of the younger teachers saw that I did that, and then a couple of them would do that as well. So that is so um, yeah, cool. So is definitely a form. Yeah, writing poetry about science. Mm-hmm. Right, writing poetry about science. I would integrate as uh, all of the, the disciplines because um, students are talented in a variety of ways. So I always try to find an avenue for them to showcase what they've learned, and to showcase their their talent. What a great story. Angela, thank you very much. Good luck with your mom down there. Thank you so much for calling in all the way from Costa Rica today. Um, Before you go, we do have people writing in to ask about misogyny in Mm hip-hop. So Mm -hmm. besides the inspiration and the fun and the empowerment of the music and the social and political consciousness of the music, uh, would you say, as a woman studying hip-hop, that there's also been a dark side that includes misogyny? Sure. Um, and it's not unique to hip-hop. You know, the misogyny against women is something that extends beyond rap music. Um, I will say this. A lot of times I'll get that, that particular question is usually followed up by, you know, how do I deal with it or how do I find a space you know, to have a voice in what is considered largely a male-dominated field. And I think that we, you know, I like to turn that on its head a bit because oftentimes we're conflating hip-hop with rap. And rap is only one element, one aspect, one practice, one form of expression of of hip-hop. There are so many others. And I think where women have come in, women are MCs, but women are also fashion designers. They're also stylists. Um, we don't celebrate Cindy Campbell enough as the promoter of the party that we're celebrating today as hip hop's genesis or Sylvia Robinson, you know, or Trisha Rose, first woman to publish a book and establish the field of hip hop studies. So I think what we have to do is elevate those moments where women are really behind the scenes and they're pushing the culture and have pushed the culture forward from day one. And so I find my motivation and my momentum in knowing those facts and that history, but also recognizing that there is misogyny and speaking to that when it's necessary. Uh, We talk about it in my courses. Uh, We try to get beyond just the surface of talking about it and think about ways in which uh, women can empower themselves in these types of spaces because again, this extends beyond hip hop. And when you're using hip hop as a teaching strategy or integrating it into the curriculum, it's much larger than the integration. It's designed to expose students to much larger critical forms of thinking, much uh, more creative and enhancing their, their creative capacities or their computational capacities. So I tend to focus on that part when, um, finding my space and my voice in the music and speaking to the excessive misogyny when it's necessary or turning it off, you know, because um, hip hop is, is not immune to 
the industry and the industry's push of certain maybe low vibrational things. And so one would think that it's excessively material because of the type of music that's being pushed. But if you go to, um, you know, if you have streaming opportunities, you know, you can dial out of the radio or dial out of some of the more traditional ways of, of hearing the music and hear something that represents more holistically what, what the culture is about and what rap music is about. Joyce Lynn Wilson, Professor of Hip Hop Studies and Digital Media at Georgia Tech University. Thank you so much for joining us. I think our listeners really, really enjoyed it, and so did I. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.